Well, welcome to City Life this fine Saturday evening. It's good to be back. This time last week, Steph and I were in the Outer Banks enjoying vacation, but uh, it's good to be back. And if you've got your Bibles with you tonight, you can turn to Matthew chapter 5 because we're going to be jumping right back into the series we're in that's working our way through the Sermon on the Mount. So we'll be working our way through that passage. But this time last week, our very own Anthony Hiltz was preaching from the pulpit, dropping an incredible word. Yeah, y'all can give it up for him because it's such a, it's a gift to the body, to our body and the body of Christ to have somebody like that who's passionate about God's word, who's an elder that's passionate for people. And he's also passionate for coffee and Starbucks. So if you're ever like, hey, we should meet up at coffee and have coffee at Starbucks, he totally would take you up on it. I can guarantee it. So if you never talked to the guy, never had a heart-to-heart with him, do it because he's awesome. He's an incredible man of God. We're blessed to have him. Um, And then this time last week, like I said, we were in Hatteras. I was ankle deep in the ocean, trying not to think about service, but thinking about service, right? So I took Raj out to the ocean to distract myself. And I just remember I was standing ankle deep in the ocean as he was playing in the waves and just praying for everybody that calls City Life home. Because that whole week, I've been basically just delighting over Raj. I don't know if you know, but Raj has seen Moana no less than, say, 230 times. And that's not an exaggeration in the least. He thinks he's Moana. He probably walked up to the beach waiting for it to part like it does in Moana. But he didn't seem any disappointed when it didn't. He just kept going into the waves again and again. And just to see him overjoyed for an entire week was awesome. And I delighted in that. And I was just praying that each person that calls City Life home would realize that God delights over you in that way. The Old Testament prophet Zephaniah says, God takes delight in you with gladness. With his love, he will calm all your fears. He will rejoice over you with joyful songs. Again, if we, we made a list of reasons we go to church, probably one of them would be to, to worship, right? To, to sing together. But remember, God sings over you. One translation said he, he, he makes shouts of joy. Like he's, he's excited about you and your relationship with him. And I just pray that each one of us would realize that anew tonight, especially as we celebrate communion, that Jesus did that for you. And he did that because he loves you and because in his eyes you're worth it. So I just pray that each one of us would feel that. I was also delighting over Steph last week because as she's talking about, she's about to have surgery, but it was a whole week where she's just no compulsion, resting, relaxing. And I was just praying. That just as God delights over his bride, right, we have this local representation of his bride, the church. He's excited about when we come together to to seek and pursue him together. And may we be just as passionate about his bride as he is and delight in this together. But it was two weeks ago that we were at the service and I was at the pulpit and we were going through the Beatitudes. Because that's the opening to the Sermon on the Mount. Right? The, the first verses, he jumps right in to the word blessed, right? Not a to-do list. He says blessed is this, blessed is that. And we talked about how the Beatitudes, they outline the character of the disciple. We talked about how the Sermon on the Mount, yes, there, were, there was a huge crowd. But it says before Jesus started speaking, he withdrew to go up onto this hillside. And he was teaching, it says, the disciples who came to him. So the disciples that came to him, he's teaching, and it's basically Discipleship 101. He was teaching them the character of the disciple. And then as we look tonight at this illustration he steps into of salt and light, he tells us about what their influence should be as disciples, the influence of the disciple. Your character will determine your influence. So that order is fitting. And the Beatitudes flow into these analogies. The author and theologian Richard Hayes says the community— The church's vocation to be salt and light for the world is to be fulfilled precisely as Jesus' followers embody God's alternative reality through the character qualities marked by the Beatitudes. So the Beatitudes speak to the disciples' character. And this analogy that we'll look at tonight, the two analogies, they speak to 
our influence. But let's turn tonight. It's verses 13 through 16 in Matthew chapter 5, where Jesus says, You are the salt of the earth, but what good is salt if it has lost its flavor? Can you make it salty again? It will be thrown out and trampled underfoot as worthless. You're the light of the world, like a city on a hilltop that cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and then puts it under a basket. Instead, a lamp is placed on a stand where it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your good deeds shine out for all to see so that everyone will praise your heavenly Father. So we've remarked multiple times through this series already that it's, it's notable that this goes down as the Sermon on the Mount. It's notable that Jesus is speaking to his followers and his people on what they would call a mountain. Because the last time God spoke to his people and gave them instruction in this way was all the way back in Exodus at Mount Sinai where he he gives the Israelites the Ten Commandments. Maybe you've seen the movie, right? Or maybe you're not familiar with the Bible. In Exodus, God delivers his people from generations of slavery and bondage in Egypt. And he delivers them to freedom. Then he takes them to Mount Sinai and he gives them his Ten Commandments. He gives them uh, the, the morality to live by. And then he takes them to the promised land. And this is notable because the promised land was surrounded by the ancient powers in this period of history. And we should take note of that tonight because it's profound. It's important for us to to recognize that God in his wisdom calls his people to himself, out of bondage, into freedom, and to himself. And then he gives them morality to live through his commandments. And then he positions them, again, amidst these great powers of the world geographically. Why? Why? So that other nations could look at how they lived, how they loved, how they raised their families, how they took the Sabbath, how they worshiped God and take note and see its goodness and see its fruit and see its life and be drawn in. That was the influence that they were called to have. It says in Exodus 19.6, God says, you will be my kingdom of priests, my holy nation. A holy nation amidst these pagan nations that would see the way they lived and Bring glory to God. But if you keep reading in your Bibles, you realize that Israel fumbled this calling pretty epically, uh, pretty adamantly, uh, undeniably. And this is why Jesus comes. There's so many pictures uh, that speak to Israel, but they also point to Jesus prophetically in the book of Isaiah, which I've been reading through this week, where Isaiah 49, it says, I will make you a light for the nations. Isaiah 42, you will be a light to guide the nations. Isaiah 9, those walking in darkness have seen a great light. And these point to the Messiah. But then when we start reading about Jesus, we see again, he brings his disciples and his followers together and he says, look, I want you to be salt. I want you to be light. And there have been hundreds, probably thousands if not hundreds of thousands, of teachings on this passage of, about the salt and light imagery and analogy that Jesus gives here, creative takes based on the uses of salt and the effects of light. But I want to look tonight, not just from that angle, because we will look at it from that angle, but also what Jesus doesn't say. Because Jesus is one of the most quoted, if not the most quoted person in history. But there's also weight to what he doesn't say. For instance, Jesus doesn't say, when I'm done with you, you'll be salt and light. He says, you are salt and light, present tense. And this is notable because at this point, Jesus' followers hadn't been with him for some lengthy amount of time. He doesn't say, I'm gonna do some work in you, and then when I'm done with you, you'll be salt 
and light. He doesn't say you must become salt and light. He says you are salt. You are light. And this speaks to me personally because I don't know about you, but in my life, God consistently sees more in me than I see in myself. And so often he uses people to speak prophetically to things that I deny or I don't see in myself. But here Jesus is affirming his disciples and revealing to them their purpose. Now, are we broken? Am I broken? Yes, we all need to come to God. We've all sinned. We've all fallen short. But when I come to God, right, I have a purpose and a destiny in him. Again, Ephesians 2, you get to Ephesians 2.10, it talks about how we're saved by grace through faith, but it's to do the works which he's prepared in advance for us to do. And you keep reading Ephesians, Ephesians 3.20, it talks about those things that are beyond what we would imagine for ourselves. We have an Ephesians 2.10 calling and purpose with Ephesians 3.20 potential. But so often in life, life can just make us feel like we, don't, we haven't amounted to much, we're not good for much. Seasons of life can make you feel the opposite of this. Like any time, I don't know if any of you have ever spent time out of a job for an extended period of time. It attacks your self-worth. Maybe you've been single for an extended period of time and, and you begin to wonder, do I have anything to offer? Or you've subscribed to expectations that cripple your self-image or expectations even in our culture that cripple the way you look at yourself as a mother or a husband or a parent. Or there's accolades and achievements or possessions that kind of cast a shadow over your life because you haven't walked in them. Life sometimes can make us feel like we don't matter much. But Jesus is saying, no, you matter. You're salt, you're light, present tense. Maybe you'd be like, so what? What's so important about salt, right? That salt's on every table, everywhere you go, at any restaurant. What's the big deal about salt and light? There's a scholar, Pliny the Elder. He was born in 23 A.D., so a long time ago in Roman culture, and he wrote an essay on salt that concluded, nothing is more useful than sun and salt. Nothing is more useful than sun and salt. It's fitting that Jesus then calls us salt and light, right? What Jesus is saying is, is you're useful, you're important, you're essential to the world and to the work that God wants to do in the world through his kingdom. You know, salt to us, though, <laughs> It's not very important. It's delicious, yeah. Like when I get the bowl of chips at a Mexican restaurant and there's the white sauce there, I'm the guy that sprinkles more salt on it. Sometimes people look at me like, are you crazy? Yes, because salt is delicious. But important, my doctor would tell me the only thing that's important about salt is don't have too much of it because you'll kill your heart, right? Like watch your sodium intake. But one thing we do see is important in our culture and we place a lot of value in is our salaries, for better or worse. That word comes from the Latin word salarium where the root word is Saul, which means salt. This is because Roman centurions were often paid in part with salt because salt had such value that it was used in commerce and trade and for currency back in the day, a long time ago. That's why when people say someone is worth their salt, it means they're valuable. That's where that saying came from. Salt carried an immense value, had so many uses, right? It, had, it, it was used for preservation. You could place it next to a fire and it would increase the heat. You could obviously, we know, use it for flavor because it's delicious. And you could use it for healing, right, putting salt on a wound. And I don't want to lean too heavily into one of those uses, but the bottom line is salt has an impact. Again, it has an impact on preservation, on heat, on flavor, on healing. So what does this tell us if we as Christ's disciples are salt? We're called to have an impact. We're not just called to be good. We're called to be good for something. 
I think so often in life we get caught up on being good and behaving and self-preservation and self-improvement, but we're called to be good for something, not just be good. You have a purpose greater than self-preservation. We have purposes in the world through Christ and in his kingdom to reach the world. But notably, again, two things that Jesus doesn't say in addition to this, he doesn't say you're the sugar of the world or the earth. This is notable because, again, salt was used in healing. But, you know, when you put salt on a wound, it stings. It doesn't feel good. And sin is an open, festering wound. It says in Jeremiah, it's a mortal wound. There's a powerful verse in Jeremiah where God is, is rebuking his church, rebuking its leaders, his people. He says, I will pour out my fury. Those are five words from God I never want to hear, right? Why? He says, they offer superficial treatments for my people's mortal wound. They give assurances of peace where there is no peace. Again, we're, we're called to love everyone. But if somebody's living separate from God, separated from God by sin, we're not just to say that there's peace where there is none. Right Before the good news, as we talked about during communion, there's the bad news that, yes, we've all sinned and fallen short. And sometimes that stings. To people who might think, well, I'm basically good, you know. I stumble sometimes, but I'm a good person. But the good news comes after the bad news. And people don't always react happily when somebody puts salt in their wound. Matter of fact, Jesus says right before this passage, you're going to endure persecution. Right before he goes into this salt analogy, because salt stings a little bit. But preserving righteousness and truth in our culture that's so, quote, unquote, progressive isn't always celebrated. But he doesn't call us the sugar of the earth. He calls us the salt of the earth. Then he also says that, again, he says, you are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. And there's a, 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 a truth in that passage that speaks to me and it speaks to you individually. But the you in the Greek that he uses here is plural. We've talked about this trap in Scripture before where there's 4,720 verses in your Bible where essentially the Greek word for y'all is translated you. So we read these verses, and we think it's about me, myself, and I, when really it's about God's people. Right? He's saying, you all are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. So honestly, that takes a little weight off. right? For me to be the light of the entire world, like that's tough. But when you realize we all are the light of the world, let's be honest, that takes some of the pressure off. We're still called to it, but man, we're not called to do it as a lone ranger. We're not called to do it on our own. We're called to do it as a part of the church. But Christ also notably doesn't say that you are the salt of the heavens and the light of the church. He says you're the salt of the earth. You're the light of the world. And this speaks to where our impact is supposed to be felt. You know, I've been reading through, or I finished reading through Job where he questions God again and again as he's in suffering. And then God comes out of the cloud says, brace yourself like a man. Other words, I never want to hear from God, right? <laughs> brace yourself like a man. I have questions for you. And one of the questions he asks is in Job 38, verses 12 through 13, where he says, since your days began, have you ever commanded the morning and caused the dawn to know its place so that light may take hold of the corners of the earth and shake the wickedness out of it? You know, the, being the light of the world takes on a whole different connotation when you read about lighting taking hold of the corners of the earth to shake the wickedness out of it. But throughout Scripture, light and darkness speaks again and again to good and evil and the battle between them. But what comes first? 
dawn, right, the source of light, knowing its place. And I'd have to ask sometimes, does the church know its place as light? Because there are places on earth that go without light for long periods. You start going uh, extreme north and extreme south on our globe, and you'll go days, weeks, months without dawn or light. There was a great explorer, Admiral Robert Peary. He once explored these regions. He's the man that discovered the North Pole. He endured many hardships to do it. And what do you think he said the greatest obstacle was? I would think the cold. (laughs) Maybe, you know, being separated from loved ones for so long as you're trying to do this mission that you might not make it back from. But he said the hardest thing in the entire journey was just the lack of light. The enduring darkness. Because that absence of light, he said, it robbed their spirit. It, it, It stole their passion, just being in darkness for so long. You know, there are people around us that live in a spiritual darkness, a perpetual spiritual darkness. That's the proper place for the light of the world. Light isn't needed in the most well-lit regions, right? It's needed in dark rooms, in in the North Pole. But too often we settle for being the light of the church or the light of the churched or our church subculture, right? We're like holding flashlights at high noon. But if you remain apart from darkness, you can't scatter it. You put a candle in darkness or a flashlight in darkness, it's, it scatters it, right? Darkness is just the absence of light. But when light shows up, it changes things. And I can hear what some people would say, but, 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 but we're called to be set apart, right? We're called to be set apart. But being set apart is not about your geographic position. It's about the condition of your heart, your heart's condition. So you can be, you can be different, but that doesn't demand distance. Now, again, We're called to do this as the church, so we rally around each other, we keep each other accountable, but we're called to to go outside these four walls and be a light. But so often we confuse our call to be set apart, and as a result, we forget our call to be sent, which is kind of a big deal. Read the Great Commission, right? Where are we sent, though? To the front lines of ministry. You know, I've had people come to me, I'm sure Anthony's had people come to him as he heads up SLT, like, put me to work, which is great. The local church doesn't exist without people with servants' hearts, people who wear the blue shirts, the black shirts, serve on tech. The local church, this church, and the global church wouldn't exist without people who serve in that way. But we also need to ask God, put me to work Monday through Friday. Because, listen, I believe with all my heart, the church work that counts the most is being a Christian, a follower of Christ, passionate about Christ, wherever you are, all of the time. That's ministry. That's the front lines of ministry. And much of this impact and influence we're called to as disciples is accomplished in the ordinariness of our lives. The nine to five, the Monday through Friday. You know, we hear our call to be salt and light, and I think sometimes we think of filling stadiums, right, of dramatic preaching, of missions trips across borders, and we end up missing our opportunity to be salt and light because it appears ordinary. But sometimes being sent simply means being present, moment by moment, day by day. Being a Christian, which means a little Christ, passionate about Christ, wherever you are all the time. I've said it before, God doesn't just need people who will go across borders with the hope that we have. He needs people that are willing to go across the street, right, to to talk to the people we pass day by day. The world that we're called to as individuals so often is made up of the faces we pass every day, where we're called to be salt and we're called to be light. But our daily experiences with other people, they're not always great. 
Matter of fact, I saw a survey recently that found 79% of people find a lack of respect and courtesy to be a serious problem. 88% said they often come across people who are rude and disrespectful. There's an author, Donald McCullough, who wrote a book. It's basically practical advice to be a response to this kind of behavior in our culture. It's basically practical advice, how to be salt and light in a culture of just rudeness, right? And it's so practical. He talks about kneeling down when you speak to children, leaving a tip that's worth working for, remembering to say thank you, sending birthday cards. Seems really practical, but I swear, some of the stuff we forget is so practical, like eye contact, right? Smiling when you talk to people. It's like a lost art. And you would think, what does that count for? But there's a great quote where he says, these things may not seem very important when compared with the major problems facing our culture, yet they may be the best place to begin. They may be the only honest place to begin. If a person can't remember to say thank you to her housekeeper, it probably won't matter much if she writes a major philosophical essay on kindness. If a person is rude to his family, the angels probably won't give a holy rip. I love that. If he preaches soaring sermons on the nature of love. What sermon does your life preach, right? Is there anything noticeably different about your life? Or are you so rooted in the things of our culture and the things we consume as a culture that your fruit doesn't look any different? Or are you so rooted in Christ and his word that you just walk in the fruit of the spirit? You know, in Roman culture, in the early church, Christians stood out like a bonfire in a black hole. Let me tell you, it, it, it wasn't because of the big tent revivals. It wasn't because they were filling coliseums with Christians. It wasn't because of, of just strings of miracles or healings, even though those things were happening. The, the philosopher Aristides, Aristides, Aristides uh, whatever, wrote in 125 AD of Christians that they were notable because they walked in all humility and kindness. That's what set them apart. You know, in our culture, that'll count for something too. You walk in all humility and kindness, you're being a light. But if you share the world's roots, consume the same things, and that's your focus, you're, you're going to share its fruit. But we're called to be salt. We're called to be light. We're called to stand out. If you don't show by your life what you claim to believe, basically you're hiding your light from the world. Or, as it says in this passage we just read, you're salt that loses its saltiness. Now, chemists and students of chemistry would laugh at this because salt can't lose its saltiness. It's a stable compound, right? So it can't become anything else but salt. But Jesus isn't talking as a chemist. He's not talking as a scientist. He's talking as the creator of humanity that understands how humans work. And what he's saying is that when a person is no longer who he says he is, then he's good for nothing. When you say one thing, you do another. It's what we might call a, a hypocrite, right? The Greek root of the word hypocrite means actor, right? You're, you're, you're putting on one front, but really you're somebody different. And we often think of this as somebody who appears or claims to be better than they really are. But I would say there's another form of hypocrite that hurts the kingdom of God. And it's one who fails to appear as good as he really is. The good he proclaims to believe. One who fails to do the good publicly that they proclaim to believe privately. Again, salt makes its presence known. Light stands out in darkness. Both have an impact. But sometimes we as believers, we don't want to cause waves. Right? We don't want to stand out like a sore thumb. Right? We like to play the background. One can be a hypocrite because they're too ashamed of their convictions to make them known. We want to be one of the guys. So our, our idea of pretending to be something we're not is we're just one of the guys. 
I don't know if y'all say one of the gals, but, but that, right? One who refuses to speak out at the proper time, hides their light under a bushel of timidity. When Jesus says, let your light shine, he's saying, don't hide your faith behind fear and timidity. Your faith should be deeply personal, but not private. While I'm at talking about light, these lights aren't on. Greg, if you want to get those lights back here <laughs> before it gets dark. And then we could actually do a nice application, though, where we get out our flashlights on our cell phones and say, yes, when you light in the darkness. But, yeah, we won't do that. Thanks, Greg. See, the tech team is never noticed. But can we give it up for Greg? <laughs> he makes our worship team sound good. He doesn't really make me look good, but. It says in the New King James Version, it says, let your light shine. Beautiful illustration as the lights come on. Let your light shine so they will hear all you have to say. No, actually, it doesn't say that. It says, let your light shine so they may see your good works. Talk is cheap. But, you know, social media has taught us to talk and talk and talk and be outraged but do nothing and throw up a hashtag, but then sit on our hands. People want to see stuff lived out. You know, when I was first hired as a pastor, I was pretty naive, and I'm not afraid to say that. I was convinced that writing sermons and sermon preparation, that was going to be key. That was going to be the jam, right? Like, I was going to preach sermons, and it was going to flip switches in people's lives, that sermons are where revival was going to happen, that through sermon prep and sermon execution, like, that was going to be the key to ministry. But I realize as a minister, it's no different than anyone else who follows Christ. So often, the, the greatest source of our light is not the words we say, it's the life we live. Now, I don't subscribe to the whole preach the gospel at all times and when necessary use words. One, because he probably didn't say that. Um, if you look at history, <laughs> somebody made that up and threw his name behind it. But also, it says in Scripture, let the redeemed of the Lord say so. So let's say something. There's two important sides to this coin, though the back and forth, the tug and pull, and they're this. We need to speak the truth of the gospel for people to know it. It's kind of hard for people to understand the concept of Jesus dying for our sin and substitutionary atonement and the gospel simply by the way we live our lives. At some point, you've got to talk about Jesus Christ and the work of the cross. But just as we need to speak the truth of the gospel for people to know it, they need to, we need to live the truth of the gospel for people to see that it's real, that there's fruit to this, that there's life to this, You've probably heard somebody say that you're the only Bible that most people will read. Well, I was talking to Stan Anderson. He's an OG of City Life Church. He's been a member for 12-plus years now. He's one of what you would call a seasoned saint. This guy has so much stinking wisdom. If you don't invite Anthony out to coffee, go out to coffee with Stan Anderson. But he said, so he heard somebody say once, you're the only Bible most people will ever read, and they need a revised edition. Because if you look at the church and its witness in our culture, we need to make some revisions, right? We're supposed to represent Christ, and we need to make some revisions. And that doesn't mean change the truth of the Bible, but change your life to better live out the truth that we see in the Bible. So I would ask the question and write this down. Look at this every week, every month, every morning, whatever. What revisions does your life need to be a better light, to be a better representation of Christ? Is it quitting gossip, eliminating words or conversations? Is it private stuff, like just praying more? 
publicly, praying for people more, reading the word, but then speaking it into people's lives? Is it honoring your wife in public? Is it honoring your wife in private with what you're looking at? Right, because it's the iceberg principle. They see the 10%, but it's the 90% that, that supports that. What revisions does your life need? Again, too often we don't shine like we're supposed to because our roots are the same as the world, so the fruit is the same as the world. Our roots don't go deep into the word. Our roots don't go deep in prayer. Our roots are spent on the same binges and consumption, so we have the same fruit. But we're called to let our light shine. And then you ask, why? Is it so people can like us, approve of us, uh, herald us? No, it, it says you, you do this so that everyone will praise your heavenly Father. You know, our motive as believers for serving others and generally not being a jerk is different than that of the world, right? It's not for likes. It's not for personal acclaim. It's so people will give glory to Jesus Christ. Our goal in serving others isn't to make them more comfortable as they're on their way to hell, right? Our goal in serving others is so that they can encounter Christ and make their way to heaven. There's a great quote by the artist and poet Propaganda. He says, I don't need a spotlight. I'm trying to be one who lights up the kinged one. And I love this idea of our light being a spotlight because if we're supposed to shine it on anything, it's God who's in center stage, not me, right? I'm off to the side. I believe it's the message version. John the Baptist says, I'm a mere stage hand, right? God is at center stage. But I think if you think of this analogy as our light being a spotlight, think like prison break, cartoons where guys are breaking out of prison and the, 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 the jailer has the spotlight, right? And they catch them and they're busted. And I was like, all right, back to your cell, right? I think so often we expose darkness as a church, but we so often do it to point the finger and not extend a hand, right? To, to point to that's wrong. You should stop doing that, but that's it. And then our witness and our, the witness of our light becomes go directly to hell, do not pass go, right? But if our spotlight is to shine on God, who's at center stage, we point to his goodness, which leads people to repentance. Not us shaming them for what they're doing, but the goodness of God leads people to repentance. Now, we absolutely should champion truth and scripture and God's word, but it's the Holy Spirit's job to convict, not ours. So often the church acts like its job is to convict and hand people the shame that they think they should be feeling, but God doesn't convict people to bring shame. God convicts and brings guilt to the surface so that it can be removed, right? He wants people to mourn their sin so that they can experience blessed are the mourn for they are comforted because the weight of sin is removed. He wants us to come to repentance, not languish in shame. And like we were talking about, before Jesus preaches this Sermon on the Mount, the first words of his ministry are repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. We talked about how this word in the Greek for repent means to reconsider everything, Everything you know to be true, all things. It's a complete 180 of your whole life where everything is changed. It's not giving God a portion of your life, uh, 90 minutes on your weekend or some time in the morning. It's your whole life being consumed. You know, again, as you think about this image of lighting a candle, lighting a flame, that candle, that wood that we lit at the bonfire at the men's retreat, it was consumed. It's no longer there. What burns bright is consumed. And I think we often get this backwards because we don't come to church to be consumed. We come to be consumers, right? 
We come to church and we think, God, give me good things, right? God, advance my career. Bless my family and my finances. None of those things are bad, but we've got it backwards. It's a backwards approach because repentance is first and foremost about everything being consumed. Saying to God, not my will, but your will. I exist to serve God. This this cry of John the Baptist where he says, I must decrease and he must increase, it's basically saying, I got to be consumed by God and Jesus Christ and who he is and his mind and his heart for people. It's a call to be consumed, and only then will we shine. John the Baptist shined bright. He prepared the way for Jesus because he was so consumed by God. If I could have the worship team come up, another thing that Jesus doesn't say is is we bring the light. I think it's because we're supposed to be consumed. We're supposed to be the light. Where everywhere we go, any time of day, we make a difference because we're light. No matter where we go, we make a difference. You know, Robert Louis Stevenson, hopefully you've heard of him. He's an author of poetry and classic books like Treasure Island. He spent his childhood in Edinburgh, Scotland in the 19th century. He didn't enjoy good health in his life, and as a child, he spent a lot of time in his room. He would spend time looking out his window, and as a boy, he was intrigued by the work of the old lamplighters, right? Like their lamps, we have one right outside of our house that just kicks on when the sun sets. They didn't have that, right? They had a guy who would go around with a ladder and light the lamps up and down the street. And he was, he was excited about watching this guy do his work. And one time his nurse came in and was like, Robert, what in the world are you looking at out that window? And he exclaimed, look at that man. He's poking holes in the darkness. You know, in many ways throughout Scripture, God calls us to poke holes in darkness. Jesus redeems his people in the Old Testament. Again, he gave them instruction on how to be the light and then placed them in the promised land to be a light and poke holes in darkness. Jesus would come to his people under Roman occupation and give them instructions on how to be the light and then leave them there to be a light and poke holes in darkness. Jesus came to you here in our culture, gives you instructions on how to be a light. We have the entirety of scripture to pull from we got plenty of instructions and then he calls you to poke holes in darkness and i think sometimes again we can become so discouraged when we look at out into the quote-unquote darkness of our culture but may we be reminded of of a couple things one we're not called to do it on our own we're not called to to all by ourselves be the light of the world but we can poke holes in darkness through our lives and the way we live our lives When we forgive people that hurt us, we poke holes in darkness. When we respond to hurtful words with kind ones, we poke holes in darkness. When we care for the widow and orphan, we poke holes in darkness. When we fight for justice against oppression, we poke holes in darkness. When you do something simple as walking around with a smile saying thank you, right? Being kind, walking in the fruit of the spirit, we poke holes in darkness. Why? So people can give glory to Jesus. So that God the Father can be glorified. We don't shine a light so we can have the spotlight on ourselves. We, we be a light so that that spotlight can shine on Jesus Christ, who's forever on center stage, where it says in Philippians 2, he's been given the name above every name, exalted to the highest place, so that every knee will bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Again, that's our purpose in being a light. But maybe that's not the fruit because 
your roots aren't dug deep. They're the same as the world. And I would just ask again that question. If, you, if you're the only Bible that somebody's ever gonna read, what are the revisions that need to be made? Where your life better reflects Jesus Christ, who's at the heart of the Bible. Where your life better reflects his teaching, which show us how to be a disciple. If you're the only Bible somebody's ever gonna read, what revisions need to be made? And I would just pray that as we stand, and you can stand, we're gonna go back into worship. God's laid anything on your heart. Or as you're praying, asking this question, God, what revisions need to be made? The Hiltzes are in the back. They would love to pray for you. I would love to pray for you. But if nothing else, let's worship Jesus Christ who we celebrated in communion. Jesus Christ who, who through the Sermon on the Mount shows us his love and let's worship and praise him as we close. Again, if you need prayer, the Hiltzes are there. I'm here, but let's praise him.